talks from the prophecy of Isaiah, the greatest prophecy probably of Messiah in the Old Testament. We recapped yesterday morning very, very quickly, there was Isaiah 7, you remember, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 42, 49, and 50, and 53, the four great servant songs. Then we went back yesterday to Isaiah 11, which was really dealing with the spirit-filled Messiah having accomplished his work and the wonderful outcome and benefits of his salvation. The lion feeding with the lamb, the wolf with the kid, and so on. Uh, spiritually to be interpreted in the first place, and as I just very shortly indicated yesterday morning, uh, there are wolves around in our homes sometimes, aren't there? There are vicious leopards that scratch and bite, but these can be made tame, and there can be harmony and love and peace in the home. But eventually, somebody asked me, do you mean to say, tell me that this is going to happen literally? And I said, the answer is yes, it is going to happen literally. In the great millennial reign of our Lord, referred to particularly in uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, Christ is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. This might be a symbolical number, um, but it's a very long period, and it's a, it's, 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 it's a definite period of time when the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning, and the millennial reign of Christ will be perfect, and there won't be disharmony and violence. There'll be complete and perfect government, and the Lord will be the king, and all the nations shall go and worship. I also pointed out, which apparently was interesting to her, I've known it for years, but possibly some of you don't, the actual geographical situation of Jerusalem is on a bridge of land between three great continents. When you think of it, the geographical location is very, very remarkable. You've got Asia to the east. You've got Europe to the west. You've got Africa to the south, southwest. And there's little Jerusalem and these three great continents all impinging on Jerusalem. And the scripture says, again, it might be symbolical up to a point, I don't know, but Jerusalem is going to be the city of the great king. And there people are coming to worship. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, a quarter as much as I have uh, in preparing these studies in Isaiah. I've just got two or three copies left of the historical outline of the 8th century, which I gave to people at the beginning to give the sort of setting, the kings of Judah, Israel, Syria, Assyria, and then the prophets, and the timings, and the years, and so on. This makes the thing sort of clear in one's mind. I also put down the date of the founding and the fall of Rome, because it's rather interesting that it happened just in that century the founding of Rome. So, let's open at Isaiah 61, which is our final study. Isaiah chapter 61, and first we pray. Oh, thank you so much. If you distribute Bibles to Edith 1, 1 to 4 is our final passage this morning.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you together for the richness of your word. We thank you for the wonderful way that as we together study your word, there seems to come a stronger link, not only with yourself, but with each other. We're drawn together because we're all drawn closer to you. And we believe, Lord, that this is the basic and essential unity which we need to strive for, drawing near to the Lord, to seek his face. We thank you, Lord, that you have said in your word, Seek ye my face. We pray that our response may be, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. And so may we actively, purposefully, seek your, your face and seek to know you through your word. As Paul said, may we study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly understanding the word of truth. Help us to be earnest and active in our study of your word. A grant that many of us, if we have not done it already, may take seriously this recommendation of having commentaries and really delving into the Word of God, digging into it and finding in it wonderful treasures of infinite worth. So, our Father, we pray that this morning, under the guidance and the power of your Holy Spirit, we may see some new treasures and riches in this passage from your Holy Word. We ask it for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. May we read first Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted he has sent me to bind up the broken-hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Listen, please, while I read Luke 4 beginning at verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he, he had been brought up. And he went to the synagogue, as his custom was, on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Three chapters later on, in chapter 7, John the Baptist was facing enormous doubt and distress. He was in prison, uh, put there by Herod, because John had challenged Herod with his personal wickedness and lust. And uh, John sends a message to the Lord by two of his own disciples. And he says, are you really the one who is to come, or are we still to look for somebody else? Perhaps the memory of that incredible, wonderful event at the Jordan had become a little dim, and poor John was suffering terribly. Are you really the one? I told everybody that you were the Christ, but is this really so? Why am I in prison? In effect, he's saying. In that very hour, the Lord Jesus cured many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. Many on, um, on many that were blind, he bestowed sight. And he said to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. A familiar ring, isn't there, in those words? And so the prophecy of Isaiah 61 was immediately fulfilled in our Lord. And he personally claimed that this was the fulfillment. And so the one of whom the prophet writes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, is not Isaiah. It's this same wonderful servant of Jehovah. And uh, as I've studied the passage, uh, the following headings seem to come out for me regarding the all-glorious Son of whom this passage is really speaking. First of all, he has conferred upon him the authority to act. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to A, B, C, D, E, F, etc., he has now got the authority to act. He's anointed by the Spirit of God. He's been set aside by God for this particular service. And what a manifesto it is. What a manifesto. Here it is, and we shall study it now. So here are the benefits of his passion, and he has the authority to do all these things, to proclaim, to bind up, to release, and so on. He's earned the right to act in the world's situation. He gave his life, he fulfilled the purpose of God in effecting redemption through the death on the cross. And of his own volition, he went right through to the very end, suffering all that the cross means for us men and for our salvation. 
Therefore, at the end of his life, in Matthew 28, 18, he said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The word there, usually translated in our Bible's power, is not dunamis, might, strength, but it's exousia, the authority. All authority is given unto me. And our Lord Jesus Christ now has complete authority in heaven and in earth to act and to do what he wants to do. You and I, as under-servants of the great servant of Jehovah, have that identical authority. In 1 John chapter 2, three times the Apostle John uses this word anointing. Here in verse 1 of 60, chapter 61 of Isaiah, he says, The Lord God's anointed me. John uses the same word. You have been anointed, he says, by the Holy One. You Christians, you've been anointed by the Holy One. In verse 27, he says, The anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And in the, in the latter part of the same verse, he says, As his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Three times in the one chapter, John says, You've been anointed. Literally, the word means to be smeared. Uh, which has rather a sort of bad connotation in a sense with us in English. But we are anointed by the Spirit. We've been smeared all over by that wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the great servant son was anointed fully, completely, by the Spirit of God. And you and I, as now his slaves and his servants, are anointed. And you and I have authority to proclaim the word of God. Now his supreme authority came, of course, from the resurrection, really. Just a word or two about that. Uh, we tried to make clear uh, a couple of days ago that um, it was God in Christ who was suffering on the cross, the great judge of all the earth himself, in the person of his son, took the penalty of God against man's sin and by in, through infinite grace he came and took that penalty and then on the third day Christ rose from the dead and time after time in the book of Acts it says God raised him from the dead it's very very significant that in chapter 2 for instance don't turn to it I'll just read them one or two of them uh, chapter 2 of Acts, verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Chapter 3, verse 15, God raised him from the dead. Chapter 4, verse 10, whom God raised from the dead. Now what is the significance of that? that God raised him from the dead. He didn't raise himself from the dead. I think of it this way, very simple, but after all, great truths are best understood simply. The judge of all the earth, the one who had condemned mankind because of his rebellion and sin to a, a terrible penalty, 
the penalty having been borne by the Son of God, he went down into the prison of death. He was separated temporarily from his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the depth of the cost of the cross, which you and I will never fully understand. And the Lord Jesus Christ went down into the prison of death. And then what happened on the third day? The great judge of all the earth opened the prison doors and God brought him out of the prison. God raised him from the dead. Why? Well, the law is satisfied. The penalty has been fully exacted. The price has been paid. The law requires nothing more. Redemption is complete and the prisoner is let out. All of us know quite well that if anybody is commi committed to prison by, by, by the High Court in this country, he does his sentence, and then on the given day, with remission and all the other things, and this is all very right and proper, on the given day, the doors of the prison swing open, and out he comes. And the law can never touch that man again for that offence. The law is satisfied. And God is completely satisfied with the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he raised him from the dead, and he now has authority to proclaim forgiveness to all those who will be associated with Christ and be identified with Christ and united to Christ. And the benefits of Christ's passion come to us as we are united to him by faith. So we come on to our second paragraph. Now the Lord Jesus Christ has the wonderful opportunity to offer to mankind the benefits of his passion. What is it that he offers? We could spend a long, long time, I think, on the second half of verse 1 and verses 2 and 3. Just let's go through them fairly quickly. The first thing is he's got the opportunity of offering good news, good tidings to the afflicted. I notice that in the margin it says poor. Good news for the poor. And that's the word used in the uh, reference to it in Luke 4, which I've just read. Good tidings to the poor, which links up, of course, entirely with what I said yesterday morning, referring to Isaiah chapter 11. It's the people who are poor in themselves, who don't, as it were, lift up their own righteousness or what they think is righteousness and say to God, Lord, am I not fit to come into your presence? the poor man realizes that his own righteousness is totally and completely inadequate. And he's poor in spirit. And he gladly receives, humbly receives, the good news of forgiveness. The good news doesn't mean very much to the proud, but it means a great deal to the poor. Are you and I poor or proud? Good news to the afflicted, the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. What a welter of sorrow and brokenheartedness there is in the world today. And he's the one who can offer healing and comfort and peace to the brokenhearted. Some of us, maybe, have back in our lives some very deep, deep sorrows. 
We've come to Hildenborough for this week's holiday, and I think it's been a wonderful week. We came somewhat bruised and battered by the afflictions of life. This is the one who can offer us comfort and heal the broken heart. I know time is a great healer, they say, but here is a greater healer than time. He can bind up the broken-hearted. He can proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. How many of us are prisoners of habit, bound by activities and purposes and uh, attitudes which are very, very damaging? There are some people who've got the most terrible acquisitive spirit. They're always wanting to get things, to buy things, to have the best of everything. Even Christians, I mean. Of course, the worldly man has no other joy in life but to get as much material good as he can. But even some of us Christians belie our name by emphasizing to such a tremendous extent physical happiness comfort, possessions. And we're prisoners of an acquisitive spirit. I'm only giving this as an illustration. He can release us from that. And he can change our attitude and give us a completely new sense of values so that we desire beyond everything else to gain heavenly treasure. Where is your treasure, in effect, the Lord Jesus Christ said? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There, there are no burglars. And there's no moth to, to eat. There are no fish pooches, as we say in India. The horrible little animals that bite right through a book and leave a lovely symmetrical round hole right through the book. There's nothing to spoil your beautiful books. Nothing to spoil and mar your possessions if you've got heavenly possessions. And some of us are bound by earthly things, and even worse, of course, sinful things. The power of evil language. Of course, uh, one of the things that um, somebody mentioned the other day, that uh, when he became a Christian, it was only about three or four weeks afterwards that he suddenly realized he'd stopped using bad language. He, he, he didn't sort of realize it at the time. But he suddenly found that his lips had been made clean. Whatever the habit, whatever the deficiency, these things can be broken, we can be loosed, we can be liberated from them by this wonderful Son, the all-glorious Son of God. And he now has the opportunity to offer us this freedom and liberty. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yes, this is the time of grace. This is the time when people may be changed. There's still hope. We haven't cast the die completely. What an incredible picture that was last night. And my word, what a message there was in it. But he had time to change. And he did change. Mind you, it didn't, bring, didn't preach the gospel. But it gave us the result of the gospel, in a sense. What a wonderful transformation in Scrooge. And this is the year of the Lord's favor. 
This is the opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let the opportunity slip. Seize hold of eternal life, says Paul to Timothy. Lay hold of it. Seize it. Don't let it go. Don't let it slip out of your grasp. This is the year of the Lord's favour. And so opportunities he has to give the most wonderful gifts to men. And I emphasize once more, it's the people who are the poor, the meek, the broken-hearted, who are the recipients of these offers. Some people have too much to receive the gospel. Indeed, our Lord said, how hardly, how, how difficult it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps none of us can be in this room be accounted really rich in worldly sense. But it's very difficult for people who are rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's the poor, the broken-hearted, the meek, the humble. And we're the ones on whom God will pour his gifts. And all we've got to say is thank you. Thank you, Lord. Yes, I'll have it all. Thank you. And then there's rather a sinister, I don't quite like that word, but it is sinister in many ways. There's a sinister phrase that comes in the middle of all this loveliness and grace and giving that is spoken about. I tried to emphasize it as I read the passage out of Luke. I don't know whether you detected it. It's a very remarkable thing, and I don't think it's just by chance that our Lord stopped at a comma. He read verse 1 and the first line of verse 2 in Isaiah 61 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm sure they were all amazed. He didn't complete the sentence. Why not? Well, because uh, in the coming of Christ, it was the year of the Lord's favor. He himself said, I've come not to judge the world, but to save the world. Later on, he said, you will be judged, the world will be judged, but he said, I've come now not to judge, but to save. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Stop. But it doesn't alter the fact that the word goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. God's favor extends for years. God's judgment is effected in a day. But there is a penalty to pay. There will be vengeance in the divine sense. There is judgment to come. There is a penalty to pay. This is a moral universe, and it's absolutely inevitable that there must be punishment for the people who persist in rebellion and evil against God. Uh, in the very high intellectual atmosphere of Athens, Paul preached judgment. I'm sure it wasn't easy, but in Acts 17, verse 31. 
we read of how Paul talks about the times of ignorance that God uh, passed over or overlooked but now he says he commands all men everywhere to repent uh, by the way I must just give you this you know a very good definition of repentance is this it's taking sides with God against yourself I read that a few months ago very good do you think of it repentance is taking sides with God against yourself you see up to now before I repent I'm saying to God but Lord I'm not as bad as that chap and I'm much better than that fellow I'm, I'm not so bad. I'm not a criminal. But when the Spirit of God convi convinces me of my real sinfulness and of, of the incredible holiness of God, I repent. I change my mind. I take sides with God against myself and I say, God, you're absolutely right. I'm a sinner. I'm a twister. I'm downright selfish. And I repent. It's a splendid illustration. And God commands all men everywhere to repent and then Paul goes on to say to these clever philosophical Athenians because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed the man who's got the authority and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead so you see that's as I've already said that's why he's got the authority because he was raised from the dead and judgment is coming penalty will have to be paid it's a horrible thing to talk about but it's absolutely essential and the moral universe demands it there will be a day of divine vengeance against rebellion and sin so let's be very very quick to see salvation verse 3 goes on to describe yet further the offers that God can give that the Lord Jesus could give to grant to those who mourn in Zion and then again these vivid Eastern word pictures a garland instead of ashes whenever you go to any place in India when you're in any way a sort of VIP whether you're a visiting missionary or whatever it may be the Indians have this lovely habit, some of you have experienced it, of putting a lovely garland of flowers around your neck. We men feel a bit of a fool, at least I, I used to, with huge garlands of flowers around my neck, but uh, it's a lovely picture. And they garland you. And you just bow your head like that, and they put the garland over you, and there you walk about, and you don't take it off. This would be an insult. And here's the picture. God is going to give you, the Lord Jesus is going to give you a beautiful garland of flowers instead of the empty ashes of a lust or a life which is lived away from God. There's going to be the oil of gladness instead of mourning. There's going to be perfume and beautiful scent instead of the stink of death. There's going to be the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. There are going to be festal garments instead of widow's weeds. Beautiful robes instead of the drapes of sorrow. The mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. 
and this is what he can do for us and this is what he offers us isn't it wonderful joy instead of sorrow enthusiasm instead of depression and all the other things this is what the Lord Jesus offers to us why is it that we don't accept them why is it that we're so earthbound and oriented materia materialistically why aren't we orientated more to heaven why don't we make more emphasis in our lives on the spiritual values why don't we read the Bible more why don't we pray more why don't we serve God through serving other people more why are we so insular and inward looking we ought to be people who are just full of the praise of the Lord not that all of us are the sort of people who shout hallelujah all the time. Some people like doing that. I, I'm not myself. I don't. I don't shout hallelujah all the time. I pray that I may be full of joy, however, and that my heart has got hallelujahs in it. And I certainly won't criticize the man who shouts out hallelujah. Thank God for a man who's able to express himself that way. But we ought to be garlanded with beauty. There ought to be the perfume of heaven about us and the garments of peace and loveliness. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ can give. Fourthly here, in verse 3b, meaning the latter part of verse 3, we are, we are made stable to serve. We've get, we are given a stability of character and a stability of life which is described as being oaks of righteousness. Isn't it wonderful, the vivid word pictures that these Jewish writers produce? An oak tree, and particularly applicable to Britain here, the oaks of England, our national tree, you might say. A magnificent oak tree, stable, strong, firm, unmoved in the storms. Oak trees of righteousness planting of the Lord but why why are we people made like oak trees planted by the Lord strong, fruitful, green in order that we may be bringing glory to the Lord that he may be glorified he wants our service primarily our love but our service and he gives us the stability and the strength to do so what a wonderful thing he can do for us. It isn't he is called an oak of righteousness, you notice. It's they are called oaks of righteousness. We people who've received these gifts, who gladly accepted all the offers that he's made to us, we are made people with characters which are strong and stable. And the older we grow, the more mature and strong we ought to be. I can remember a good deal of my youth, though, of course, I have to throw my mind back for almost a century, as Justin would say. <laughs> almost a century. But, you know, when one's young, one is tormented, often, <coughs> by pressures. And, uh, shall I do that? Or, shall I go there? Or, what am I to do? And there are all sorts of problems. 
I suppose in any case, as one grows older, one becomes more mature, whether one's a Christian or not. But Christians ought to become so strong and stable. People ought to be able to feel, well, I can go and talk to that person. I, I think they'll give me some good advice. It's a wonderful thing to be a good listener, as well as a good talker. And we Christians ought to be stable oak trees. And, of course, the emphasis is on righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. It's possible for an oak tree to be blown down. It's possible for rot to start in the bowl or the trunk of, a, of an oak tree. And it's possible for a mature Christian to allow the weevils of evil to begin biting at the very vitals of our life it's a superlative tragedy when a senior Christian falls it is possible but it ought not to be and so if we are oaks of righteousness this is the sort of stability that God wants and which he can give us that we may glorify the Lord I pray that increasingly I and you may become oak trees of righteousness, bringing glory to the Lord. Cheerfulness, joy, happiness, uh, optimism, all these things are so helpful to other people. And this is what we ought to be like. And then finally, in verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. There's a beauty to build. There are beautiful structures that we are now capable of building. Beauty to be built by you and me. There are plenty of ruins around. One could give many practical illustrations of, of this I think uh, there are churches in this country which are pretty ru ruined what is your attitude and mind to such churches churches that have sort of gone down the drain you know attendance is very small lethargy lack of enthusiasm what's going to be your attitude and mind if we find ourselves in a village or a place where there's that sort of church could we be the sort of people who'd help to build up the ruin and restore the devastation and renew the loss of life? Could we do something about building up the beauty of that church again? A more personal illustration may be uh, the illustration of broken relationships. There are many, many broken relationships in the world even in Christian families. Could you and I do something about building up those broken relationships so that there's beauty again instead of devastation and ruin? We get a lot of young people in this place, of course, mostly young people. I'm grateful that it isn't exclusively young, though I'm thrilled to meet all these young people. But you know, so many of them have broken relationships with their parents. 
And one of the first things that's got to be done when a young person becomes a Christian is to do what he or she can. Of course, it always takes two to make a quarrel, I know that. But they must do what they can to build that beauty of a restored family relationship between child and parent. And then, of course, there are broken relationships between husbands and wives. This is tragic, and this happens in Christian families. But the beauty can be restored in the power of Christ. And one could go on giving all sorts of illustrations. Lives can be transformed. The worship, the worship of the Lord is another illustration I noted down here. Something that's lost its vitality. It's become entirely formal. Well, the beauty of worship. You remember that lovely phrase in the Psalms where, where the, the psalmist talks about worshipping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. Perhaps this is something that needs to be reconstructed in our lives. The beauty of worship. And we've got to build a new way of worshipping the Lord, of reading his word, of going to church, of serving other people. All that beautiful aspect of life. And it can be done in the power of the Lord. Through the one upon whom is the Spirit of the Lord God. And who himself was anointed by the Spirit. And so the all-glorious Son can enable us, particularly on paragraphs 4 and 5 here. These refer mainly to him, of course, to us, of course. The first three referring mainly to him. So we can have the stability to serve God and build the beauty that has been lost. And I pray that perhaps this week has been used by God to some of us to enable us to go out and back to our own situation and to build that beauty. So this should be our prayer, I think, that the Lord Jesus Christ will come to each one of us in a new and living way, and that that prayer might be in our hearts. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The greatest aspect of that prayer is, of course, his second coming. But in a lesser sense, it can refer to us as we seek his power and seek his strength uh, in the days to come. So let's just pray together, and then we've got a few minutes for questions. Uh, if anybody would like to ask a question on any of these talks. Our Father, we thank you that your well-beloved Son has been given all authority in heaven and in earth. We thank you that the name is written upon his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that he's the Almighty One with complete authority. And with that authority, he now has the opportunity to offer the marvelous, wonderful gifts of spiritual riches which we've been thinking about. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness that he grants us, for the liberty which he can effect in our lives for the beauty that can be established in our characters through his opera the operation of his powerful spirit. Lord, we would even thank you for the penalty that one day has got to be paid.
we are told never to take vengeance. We pray that we may, may never do that, we may never take vengeance, but we know that evil and sin will have to be punished. We know that there must be retribution for those who persist in evil. O oh God, grant that we may so live that many, many people are brought to repentance.